0: The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: In these turbulent times, just about every solution you can think of has been put forth by someone, somewhere, as a way to calm the waters and live with more happiness and ease. But the fact is, you cannot think your way to better life. Change isn't something your mind can accomplish alone. It calls for mind and body to work together in a deeper unity than you may ever have imagined. Tonight, we'll learn how our cultural beliefs affect the diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment of disease, the difference between growing older, which we all do, and quote-unquote aging, our culture's standards, which we can learn not to do. What happens when we move, quote-unquote, beyond the pale of our tribe's expectations? How to navigate adversity, using uncertainty as a guide? Tonight we give you biocognitive tools for a healthy life. Join me in experiencing a paradigm shift in which the myths of doom are shattered by the science of hope, survival takes a backseat to meaning, and fear gives way to love.
0: You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material join the veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com you can make your purchase with a credit card, paypal, cash, check, money order and even cryptocurrency. we are now accepting bitcoin, litecoin, ethereum and more. don't forget to visit the veritas store for focused life force energy, mms, rebounders, cbd pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrich.
1: Dr. Mario Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He proposes, based on credible research evidence, that longevity is learned and the causes of health are inherited. He has studied healthy centenarians, people 100 years or older, worldwide, and found that only 20 to 25% can be attributed to genetics. The rest is related to how they live and the cultural beliefs they share. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs That Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, that teaches his theory and practice of biocognitive science to the general public. In addition to longevity, he also explains why our immune system is not just a protector. Instead, it responds to the cultural premises we learn to perceive the world. And directly from Nashville, Tennessee, I would like to welcome Dr. Mario Martinez. Hello, Mario. Welcome
2: back. How are you? Hi, Mel. It's uh, doing well. Haven't talked to you in a while, but it's uh, it's a pleasure.
1: It's been, I believe, uh, eight years you were with me on Sanitas. We did a stellar interview, so if anybody wants to listen to that, I'm not going to repeat a lot of what we discussed there because there was a lot. But you have new material now. Basically, what you're discussing now is a lot of longevity. This time we're discussing the mind-body-self, how longevity is culturally learned and the causes of health are inherited. How did you get into longevity, the blue zones, the telomeres, and all of this that fascinates us so much? Uh,
2: started about 20 years ago. I wanted to find out uh, what uh, what is a good theory of, uh, of longevity, because uh, what's happening with uh, gerontology, the part of medicine that studies uh, the aging process, is that they're looking at the illnesses of aging rather than the causes of health of growing older, which is what I do. And uh, so I wanted to find out what works and what works is centenarians, people who are 100 years or older and they're in good health. Uh, so I was looking at the healthy centenarians and I found that, uh, as others have found, uh, Butner's others, uh, that genetics is only 20 to 25 percent, no more. The rest is how they view the world. It's not even diets, not uh, socioeconomics. All those things help, but they don't really determine the longevity. And what I found was that there were four factors that we'll be discussing that actually are unique to these people. And I studied them all over the world, um, all f- five continents. Uh, and there it's pretty unique. But then uh, the most exciting part, which is I what what's new here from our last conversation, is that I'm working now with a, a world-class uh, longevity center in Poland. They have offices in Poland and Germany, and they're doing... Biological markers that can identify your, of course, your chronological age is what you are, and then based on epigenetic markers, they can look at what your biological age is. So you can have chronological age and biological age, which is how your cells are aging, and that's more important than how old you are. But the interesting and exciting research that I'm doing is that I developed the questionnaire that uh, identifies the four factors, so we could look at the four factors to see where you're high where you're low and then correlate that with your biological markers with uh the usual things uh, uh for example uh, your uh cholesterol and things like that but more than that is the uh inflammatory kinds of uh, markers that actually determine your biological age so we can look at that but then the most exciting thing about it is that once we do that and we correlate let's say you're high on one factor and uh um, you're low, and another factor on the uh, biological. Then we can do in- interventions to actually reverse your biological age, without ha- without medications or any kind of. Sometimes you supplement is basically the way what what we call in neuroscience the default mode, which is the goggles that you use to look at the world. So that's the most exciting thing that we're doing, and this will be world class. No one's ever done this before.
1: What is the reaction of the medical industry to this type of research?
2: Well, uh, for the most part, it's good because you, we're, this is hard data. This is uh, when you find that uh, that correlations that, that, that you have, for example, with anti-inflammatories uh, that you have in your body, and it correlates to people, for example, let's say you're 70 and your biological age is 50, it's basically determined by how you're uh, glycan and other kinds of uh, markers are actually uh, functioning and then you correlate it and and you might find, for example, all right, this is correlated with people who are 50, not people who are 70. So you might be 70 uh, chronologically, but biologically the way that you're aging, which is uh, the inflammation is really what you need to look at, you' you're 50. So it's it's real data that determines how you're aging based on on the the cell biology how how your cells are aging so for the most part it's it's taken very well because these are scientists these are people that are that are well-trained scientists who have we're who doing this work and we're testing it with different countries and different uh, groups of people and find that uh that is a it's a very powerful way to uh to look at it but the most exciting thing about it is that you can actually reverse the way that the uh, that the cells are aging.
1: This is so fascinating because even the fact that when somebody says, well, I know it's impolite, but when people say, How old are you? and you immediately think of your age, are we communicating that to ourselves to pr- program ourselves? I remember years ago when people used to live maybe to 65, then 75, now it's 82. It's almost like we're being told, we're telling our body to just live to a certain age. Do we have to lie to ourselves and say my chronological
2: age is this, but I feel thirty-five? There's no question about that. I don't even tell my age, and 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 it's very important that you don't. Uh, I I've, I've talked to uh, many times to Christian Northrup, uh, who's, a, who's a good friend, and she, when they ask her her age, she'll say, Mario doesn't want me to tell my age, so I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> and the reason for it <clears throat> is that we create. Here I'm going to talk psychonorminology. We create portals, cultural portals, that tell you how you should behave, how you should live, how you should dress, and sometimes even how you get sick. And these portals are infancy, childhood, adolescent, young adult, and especially middle age, and then uh, senior uh, or, or older. And those portals are a perception that we learn culturally. And that perception is too powerful for you to fight by intellectually saying, no, I'm I'm feeling better. I'm feeling my age. So the best thing to do is you don't tell your age. Uh, how old are you? Uh, that's not interesting to me. Uh, do you have problems telling your age? No, you have problems wanting to know my age. So what it does then is it gets you out of that concern because you lose either way. Somebody says, oh, you're looking really young for your age, which means that you shouldn't. Or oh, you're looking older. Or see, you it it pegs you psychoneologically into a particular age. So for example, if you are in a culture that says that middle age is 45, you're going into your your, your mind and your body and your biology is already preparing itself to 45. Okay, this is what happens at 45. A day before 45, you're not middle-aged. But when you reach 45, then you're middle-aged, then the culture will admonish you to live within that. You wear something that's not middle-aged and say, what, are you trying to look like a teenager? Well, what are you doing? You want to go back to school? No, you got to save for, uh, for your retirement. And admonishing you to stay within that uh, portal, in that portal, then your biology will respond to it. Examples, your biology will respond to your culture beliefs. So, for example, in, uh, I lived in Uruguay for a while, and there, women with menopause when when they have the uh, the uh, hot flashes, they call them bochorno, which means shame. And shame, we know now, psychoimmunologically causes inflammation. So the women there, they call it shame. even the doctors will call it shame, even though they know it's hormonal. They'll say that she's having the symptoms of shame instead of calling it uh, what it is. So really, in those they, countries they, they call it bochorno down there as shame. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, for well, children in, in Argentina and uh, and uh, in Uruguay, but here they call it the, the curse. So it's not any better. <laughs> so then women in those countries have more symptoms. They have more hormonal problems. Their libido drops, their self-esteem drops, and they get frumpy, and they get, they begin to look that way. And you figure, well, it's middle age. It's got to be... Or it's got to be the, um, the the hormonal process and uh, your menstruation and all that and the loss of menstruation, all the reductionistic things that are real but not sufficient. You go to Japan, and they call it konenki, which means the second the second spring or the second opportunity. Women don't have those problems. Their self esteem goes up, their libido goes up, and they become models for other women uh, in uh, in the sense of wisdom. Totally cultural. Fascinating. Doesn't shame trigger inflammation? Yes, of course. Shame. If, if, and but look how cultural it is. Uh, the the Asian cultures are more collectivist. Our cultures are more individualist. If you shame someone and they accept it as shame that that has, that person has been put down, it's been shown already many times that you begin to secrete molecules of inflammation, like tumor necrosis factor and interleukins and things that cause inflammation. And my theory states that the brain and the immune system, because the immune system have to understand the brain, are cultural, they're bioinformationally cultural. So if I shame you, you will have inflammation. And I've worked with uh, many, many women with inflammatory kinds of illnesses, autoimmune, uh, fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis. And every single time, there have been few exceptions, they have some kind of a shaming wound, some kind of of wound that I call shame. So what they're doing is they're constantly secreting inflammatory molecules, which to some point confuses the immune system. And there's some indication that it, that it pushes it into autoimmune kinds of problems. So there's no question about it. But if you're... In this culture, and I say something to you, you're so stupid, you take it as a as a personal individual thing. But in Asia and Asian countries, it's very collectivist. It's, if you shame the family, or if you shame the group, or if you shame the country, that's when the inflammation then begins to to kick in.
1: Not only are they collectivists, I mean throughout Asia, but in Japan in particular, but their 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 saving face philosophy is so ingrained Anything if you tell the truth but offend someone, the court rule in their favor in a defamation lawsuit. If you even if you are right, honor and saving phase are crucial to the Japanese culture.
2: Yes, very much, very much. And and then that that's cultural, and you learn the cultural beliefs. And why is this? Uh, people will talk about the. Uh, mind and body that they communicate with each other, but nobody tells you why or how that happens. So as you know, in my work, uh, it's it's really a combination of uh, neuroscience, cultural anthropology, psychonerminology. So you have to go to anthropology to understand this. So as Homo sapiens, the modern humans, we're about 150,000 years old. And about maybe 40,000 years, we develop consciousness and language consciousness anthropology will tell you started when we when we started burying our dead and not burying our dead only for sanitary reasons the dead were buried with trinkets and things that were considered to be valuable also at that time language comes on and you start using trinkets that have no longer a functional need as a tool that requires a tremendous neuropsychological abstractive ability and a language that comes so then before the language, you had grunts and you had really a lot of epigenetic qualities of uh, your senses. You could smell a lion 300 feet away. But then language comes on and your brain is used to smelling the, the lion and to secreting the cortisol and the norepinephrine and all that because it's an alarm. Then language comes on and you can say there's a lion 300 feet. The brain had to understand that as being something beyond the senses, and the immune system had to respond to that. And this is why language is bioinformational. And this is when you say things, you're saying bioinformational things, they're not empty words, because of the transition of when we develop consciousness and language. You know, I I don't mean to,
1: to talk about somebody else's work for a second, but I just remember Margaret Mead's quote, you probably know it, years ago, anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked, Yeah. By a student, what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture, and the student expected me to talk about fish hooks or clay pots or grinding stones, but no. Mead said that the first sign of civilization is an ancient culture, was a femur, a thigh bone, that had been broken and then healed. Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die; you cannot run from danger, get to the river for a drink, or hunt for food. You are meat. For prowling beasts, no animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended the person through recovery, helping someone else through difficulties where civilization starts. So, Mario, we are at our best when we serve others. This is what makes us
2: civilized. No, of course, and and that's that's what consciousness. Uh, uh, because before consciousness, there was, there was no present, past, and future. We take it for granted, but there was no, no past and future. Um, <laughs> actually, this is going to sound a little co- politically incorrect, but I had a, a very um, gentleman, gentlemanly uh, professor of uh, anthropology, and he spoke very softly, and he wore a three-piece suit. But he he was very to the point. He said, before, before consciousness and you saw something in front of you, you only have two choices. Do I eat it or do I fornicate it? <laughs> That's it. That's as far as you can go. Now we have options because consciousness is there. But yes, true. <clears throat> uh, service is extremely important. Service has been looked at lately. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Aristotle 2,300 years ago said that the hedonic life was not enough, that the life of pleasure for pleasure is not enough that we needed what he called eudaimonia, which is you is good in, in Greek, and daimonia is spirit, so good spirit. And he said that the good life required meaning in the joy and service that you provided. So you have to have meaning, joy, and service, and purpose. So, okay, that sounds really good and everything, and uh, that sounds, but what what is the science behind it? Well, lately, there's been some work done which is very specific to the immune system. It's called CTRA. These are, these are um, in, in the immune system, these are responses that you have against adversity. Cells that are about 21 to 40, uh, that uh, it, CTRA means uh, conserve transcriptional response to adversity. And these cells, these genes uh, in the cells will then trigger inflammation, antiviral, and antibodies, okay? So that's really, or anti-inflammation, depending on what, that's really good for for adversity. So what they did is they checked people, they did psychological tests to see who are more hedonic and more eudaimonic. And then they measured the CTRAs of of both groups. The people that were more eudaimonic, which is to your point of the service, had better CTRA, which means they have better response to adversity than the people who were hedonic. So Aristotle was right. But the interesting thing is that when they measured the level of happiness on both sides, both were the same, but the immune system and the brain could tell the difference. This is all interesting.
3: Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008.